brothers and sisters, it is a joy to be in worship with you this morning, to be reminded of how good our God is. In the midst of life and death, we are reminded that our soul cries out to God alone, and we rejoice in God our Savior. So I'd invite you to read along with me from the 123rd Psalm as we continue in our series through the songs, the Psalms of Ascents, as we're going to Jerusalem and we join our fathers and brothers and sisters before us on this journey to worship, Psalm 123. A Psalm of Ascents. To you I lift up my eyes. O you who are enthroned in the heavens, behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn those who are at ease are the contempt of the proud. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we are reminded this morning of your holiness, of your condescension to us in the form of your Son, Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God. We would be helpless without his redemptive love and death and resurrection for us, we would have no recourse. But through his blood, we have access to the holiest of holy places. We have access this morning to your throne of grace, to your throne of mercy, to your throne of compassion. And, O oh, Father, you not only welcome us into your presence, you call us, you draw us, you give us the, ne the necessary means by your Spirit's work in our hearts and our lives. Not to us, O oh Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, I want you to imagine with me for a minute that you're driving along in a foreign country. You don't know, you know, you're reading the street signs and they're all in a foreign language. And you know a little bit of this foreign language, but just enough to get by to ask where the toilet is or you can ask what right and what left is. You can count to ten. That's about it. And you're dutifully following along your GPS and then all of a sudden the GPS signal drops out your data goes to zero, and you're up in the mountains, and you're not sure which way to go, and you're reminded at that moment just how dependent you are on that phone for directions, or in the good old days, on your atlas, your map in the car. And you, of course, if you're, if you're the man driving, you're going to keep going for the next 20 minutes, because you know where you're going. But your wife will reach over to you, and she'll say, honey, I think we should ask for some directions. And so you muster up enough courage. You try to remember all those words that you learned as you flipped through the guidebook before you went on this trip. 
and you get out of your car and you stop at someone's house and you ask for directions. You sort of bumble through as they try to speak in English. And you know, at that moment, when you have to talk to that person and you have to ask them for directions, A, you have to admit that you don't know where you're going. B, you have to admit that you don't know where you are. And C, you have to admit that you don't really know the language even. That you're, you're a foreigner in a foreign land. You have to admit that you're unfamiliar with your surroundings. And we can only imagine the jubilation that you feel when you get back to your hotel and you see those familiar lights and you recognize the front of the sign and the building and this feeling of peace just sort of washes over you as you're back home temporarily. And so too the Christian life is one of pilgrimage that we often feel like we're at home We're really not. And we're reminded that our God speaks to us as we cry out to Him, as we stop and we ask for His help. If we take that minute to pray to our God, we're reminded that He doesn't reply with foreign words in a foreign tongue, in a foreign land, but He replies to us in the heartwarming, the soul-calming, the anxiety-stilling words of a father. A Father who knows us, who knows that we are dust. And we first must recognize, we first must recognize our total dependence upon Him. Our total inability to do anything else but cry out, O God, to You I lift up my eyes. You who are enthroned in the heavens. And so we've come in our journey through the Psalms, through the Psalms of Ascents, Psalm 120 through 122, and we're on our way to Jerusalem, but what happens? We've, got, we've gotten a glimpse of Jerusalem in Psalm 122 that Josh preached on last week, but yet here we find ourselves again confronted by the enemies of that very kingdom, of that very city, Zion, the Holy Hill, even Jerusalem herself, even saints, even God's people on the way to worship on Sunday morning, are not exempt from the attacks of the evil one. And so, brothers and sisters, my question to you this morning, the question that the psalm begs you to ask is this, what do you do? What do we do when the attacks of Satan, when the attacks of the world on your soul, on your confidence, on your assurance, seem never-ending and seem like they will bring you to the end of yourself. Well, the psalm before us reminds us this very simple point that we are to look up to God because He alone offers the mercy that we need. We are to look up to Him because He alone offers the mercy that our souls long for, that our hearts cry out for, and that the world reminds us we are going towards. So you'll notice in the outline, I've just divided this uh, pretty simply into two points. First, look up to God, verses 1 through 2, and then verses 3 through 4, that God alone offers you the mercy that you need. So first, verse 1, to you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. You'll notice first that this God that we worship, the God that we come to in, in prayer to, is three particular 
things. And of course, God, we know, is more than these, but this is what the psalm before us teaches, that God first is a father, that God is our master, and that God is our king. God is our father, our master, and our king. So first look with me at verse 1, God is our father. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. You'll notice that the psalmist uses, he doesn't say, O God, here. He simply uses the pronoun you. He says you as if he knows who this God is, as if he, there is no introduction needed. He has a personal relationship with the God who is enthroned in the heavens. And this, brothers and sisters, is for you this morning. You have access to the king of the universe, the one enthroned above all the earth and the heavens, the universe and all that's contained. The God of Scripture is the pilgrim's hope from first to last. He personally deals with your problems, your heartaches, your depression, your pains, and even your death. So what are we called to do? We're called to draw near to our God this morning with all reverence and all confidence as children to a father, our catechism reminds us. He is ready, he is able, and he is willing to help us. But we must draw near. We must approach the throne of grace to make use of the gifts and the means of grace that he's given to us, particularly in prayer. And so we ask, well, where do I begin? How do I, how do I open my mouth in prayer? I've, I'm not used to it. I haven't grown accustomed to prayer. Or I'm just not sure that he'll want me in prayer. I don't know that he wants me before him. Well, I'll tell you this. I assure you, brothers and sisters, this psalm assures and reminds us that he not only wants you there, he commands you to come before him and he says, I am going to draw you by every means necessary to myself. I have offered everything for you. I have offered a means of access to my very throne of grace. And so you'll notice, how does the prayer open? I lift up my eyes. You think about how does the Lord's Prayer open? Our Father who art in heaven. Exactly how the psalmist opens for us this morning. Oh, you who are enthroned in the heavens. The prayer, you'll notice in the prayer that the request does not come until verse 3. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us. So what is verses 1 and 2 all about? Well, it's all, all about a recognition of the status that we have as servants and therefore assuming the position of reverence, assuming the positions of servants and yet at the same time of sons, of those who have been called to live in his kingdom and to submit to his laws, but we do it not out of not out of a compulsion, but out of a love for who he is, out of a love for what he's done for us in Christ. And so where do you begin in prayer? You begin with a humble, a personal, a reliant recognition that the God whom you go to pray to is the only one who can answer your need. That he is your personal king, your personal savior, your personal high priest, the one who every high priest was pointing to, the one who every king in the Old Testament was pointing to, and every prophet proclaimed. He 
is your Savior. And brothers and sisters, prayer begins with a reminder in your own heart and an admission with your mouth that you are not independent, that you have no rights in and of yourself. You give up any claims on your own autonomy, on your own ability to save yourself, on your own ability to do it alone. Or as Paul Simon said, you're an island all to yourself, a rock, and you're going to figure it out. You are not independent, but in fact, you are totally dependent upon one who is more than enough for your soul, upon one to whom you can not only lift your eyes, but you can cry out to him with your souls, your heart's deepest longing, fears, and loves. So he is first your father, But we also know that he is our king because he is enthroned in the heavens. Who is the God addressed in verses 1 and 2? Well, this is a God who is sovereign, a God who is our ruler, a God who will judge the living and the dead, the God who is not to be trifled with, the God who has indeed killed those who are his enemies. And we stare that in the face because we are called to look God to gaze at all of his beauty and all of his holiness and all of his justice and all of his mercy, to know that he is all of those things at all times, to say, you are my father, you are also my king. Because he is enthroned, but he is enthroned in a particular place. He is enthroned in the heavens. Heaven is the place of God's particular presence. He is not only in heaven, The psalmist reminds us that if I run to the farthest depths of the ocean or I run to the depths of the earth or I run to the highest heaven, you will find me. There your soul will grab me. But God is particularly present in heaven. And we know that when we go to be with Him there, that we will experience the joys that we have never known on earth because we will see Him as He is. Think of Isaiah chapter 55. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways, God says, higher than your ways. And my thoughts than your thoughts. We cannot even comprehend how great his love is for us in Christ. How much greater he is than us. We make an attempt. But brothers and sisters, Isaiah 55 and Psalm 123 reminds us that we look up and we behold one who is so much greater than anything or anyone we have ever known. He is the only one who is so great and our king. We not only look up to our father, to our king, but we also look up to God as our master. And you have before you, in verse 2, as I was studying this this week, I mean, you can meditate and meditate and meditate upon this, and there is no depth to this illustration, or there is a great depth to this illustration, no end to it. What, is he, what does the psalmist say? Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look up to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. And I want you to just take a minute or so as we're going through this and reflect, what does a servant do as he looks to the hand of his master? What does a maidservant do as she looks to the hand of her mistress? Well, I want to put before you this morning this idea that 
uh, that the idea of eyes, as servants look to their master or or maids to their mistress, that the servants look first for favor. They look for mercy. They look for help because a servant is helpless. A servant before his master can do nothing except what the master tells him to do or grants him to do. He relies on his master for every scrap of food on his table, for his family's provision. He is at his master's mercy, and his master alone can give him that mercy. But what does he look to? He looks to the hand of his master. Now, servants are at the mercy of their master because the master has power. The master has control. The master in his hand holds, if you will, the fortunes of his servant. As I was reflecting on this, I was thinking I was watching Eska, my wife, feed our seven-month-old Esther. And I'm watching watching Esther as, as my wife is feeding her. She's just kind of bobbing up and down, following the baby, the spoon with the baby food on it. And she is, if my wife does not give that spoon to her, if she simply, you know, kind of tantalizes her with the food, she is at the mercy of her mother. And so we are at God's mercy for nourishment, for provision. And when the spoon goes in the mouth, and when God feeds us, and when he provides for us with his word, and with the sacraments, and through prayer, we are fed to the full. We do not leave worship hungry, but we leave filled with the word of God, filled with the love of God, reminded by brothers and sisters being present and hearing them sing and seeing them worship through life and through death that God is our master and our king and our father. But what do we wait for? Notice our eyes look up to the Lord our God until he has mercy upon us. This is his food that he offers, the food of mercy. You know, we are called to cry out to God in prayer, to wait on his response, whether God's response be positive, yes, negative, no, or asking us to wait. And I challenge you because it's easy to forget that all three are responses to our prayer. The yes, the no, and the wait are all responses that he has heard our cries for mercy, that he has heard his children come to him as a father. And we should expect, brothers and sisters, expect that God will, in fact, fulfill those covenant promises to us, which are yes and amen in Christ, because we are his children. And if we ask him for bread, He will not give us a stone, but he will give us abundantly above anything we could have asked or imagined. And even as we are in worship this morning, as you look around you at your brothers and sisters, we are reminded that God even gives us strength, that we are dependent even upon one another. As God encourages us, as he strengthens us, as he reminds us of who he is by those present around us, And so we are reminded here, you'll notice the pronouns that they change. The beginning of verse 1, to you I lift up my eyes, O you enthroned in the heavens. But then by the end of verse 2, it's a plural. So our eyes look to the Lord till he has mercy upon us. 
And so we come to God not only in private prayer, not only in personal worship or personal devotions, and we read and we pray and we cry out to God for personal mercy, for our personal problems and our personal sins. We are honest and open. But we come with others and we come for others. That our prayer life should be peppered, if you will, with requests for others with requests for our nation, with requests for the leaders of our churches, because these are the ones to whom we are to give submission, to whom God has said, you are to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, to pray for the good of Zion, even as we go up to Jerusalem and we come to worship. And so corporate prayer is a reminder. As we gather together with other believers, we are reminded of God's faithful love for us in Christ. And so I'd ask you this morning, is prayer, is it a regular, is it a natural part of your dealing with distress? That's what the psalmist has, and we'll get to it in verses 3 and 4. Do you bubble over in prayer when the world attacks you, when you feel your own sin pressing in, is your natural first response prayer? And I dare say for many of us, if not all of us, the answer is no. Prayer is often a last resort. Prayer is often the thing that we do when everything else we've tried hasn't worked out. When the spreadsheet and trying to figure out, well, this, this didn't work and I'm trying to solve all the little problems. When that doesn't work, then I'll pray. But the psalmist reminds us that when we feel the need, immediately the need for mercy because of contempt, because of scorn, because of pride, not only out there, but in here, that the immediate response of the believer should be, to go to your father. Imagine if your children, you know, fell off, your child fell off a bike. We had this happen just uh, Friday. And your child falls off the bike and they just sort of sit there and they're bleeding and they don't cry out and there's no ask for help, a call for their mom or dad to come and bandage them up. That would be, you'd ask, what's wrong with this child? What's happened to this, to this person? that they haven't cried out to their parents. That's, that's the kind of visceral response we should have when we don't pray. Why, why is this not coming to me? Why is this not happening? This should be the natural response that when I'm, when I'm in distress, when I've fallen off and I cannot get up, that my natural response should be, oh God, help me. I'm lying here and I cannot do anything unless you offer me mercy. And so look to God in prayer. Spend time with him in his word, in meditation, both privately and corporately. This is why we gather every week for worship. And you know, we're reminded this week that our world and particularly our country idolizes autonomy, idolizes power, idolizes independence, idolizes individual rights. And Psalm 23 gives us a glaring reminder that those things are not ours in and of ourselves. We have given up all rights when we sin. We've given up all independence when we defy the king of heaven and earth, when we have not gone to our father, when we've not loved our master and said, what can I do for you? And our world cries out and says, I am my own. But Psalm 123 reminds us that we must look to God for every need, every gift, and every grace. And so what is your struggle today? Go to the rock who is higher than you. 
and he will offer you mercy. God's faithful, his covenant love provides the confidence that we have through Jesus Christ, worked in us by his Holy Spirit, that he will fulfill his promises to you, dear Christian, that he loves you. He has called you by name. So we've seen that we are to look up to God. We also see that the reason that we look up to him is because of verse 3, that he has mercy for us that we so desperately need. And you'll notice first there's a request for mercy, and then we see the real need for mercy. So the request, have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us. Now the immediate question in our minds might be, well, why, why does the psalmist say this two times? And maybe it's somewhat obvious. We see here not just a repetition for the repetition's sake, uh, but we see here the repetition of someone who is desperate. Someone who knows that they have no other recourse, no other ability outside of themselves. Mercy is that God look upon him, that God look upon us in our pitiable position and offer us help. Mercy, often we think about mercy as simply, if you've contrasted it with grace, you'll often hear the definition that mercy is not getting what you deserve, right? Well, here the Hebrew word is a little bit different. In fact, some translations translate the word mercy here as grace. So it's not a particular mercy that's just not getting what you deserve, but actually the idea of mercy here is far more, it's far broader than that. It's this idea of favor, of compassion, of pity, and even, yes, of grace itself. The mercy described is God giving us help. And so we ask God to consider us out of the abundance of that mercy, not because of what we have done, but because of his merciful character. And the request is made two times again, showing that desperation. Why? The end of verse 3. Because we have had more than enough of contempt. More than enough. Notice that as we read on into verse 4, our soul has had more than enough of contempt, of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. Notice that verse 4 is what we call an amplification, or it's, in, it's making verse 3 stronger. For we have had more than enough of contempt, and the psalmist explains. Here's what that means. Our soul has had more than enough of what? Of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. So it's explaining, if you will, verse 4 is explaining that part, the second half of verse 3. More than enough of contempt. So the natural question is, well, what is contempt? Contempt is simply a despising, a looking down with disgust, with pride, and yes, even with that other word that's used, with scorn. One commentator comments on contempt this way, and I found this very helpful because it's easy to think of contempt as just what other people do. As contempt is meant as, that's the wicked out there. This commentator says this, Contempt goes deeper than any other form of rejection. It is particularly wounding when it is casual or when it is unconscious, when we don't think about it. But contempt is also, it can also be deserved and irreversible when it is not unconscious, when it is done, in other words, when it is done purposefully, 
when you are purposefully acting in pride, when you are purposefully acting with scorn dealing with others. Because the commentator writes, contempt is one of the pains of hell. And in Daniel, I think it's Daniel chapter 12, God says through Daniel that he has contempt for the unbeliever, for the wicked. So we need to consider that contempt is more than just pride. It can actually have wrapped up in it this idea of judgment. And we have to recognize this is why pride is one of those sins that it is, that is so devious. And we need to deal with it here before we deal with it there. Nehemiah chapter 4 uses similar language. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back there, that is the wicked's taunt on our heads, and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. You know, we can be captivated, captured by pride, by our own self-worth, by our own value, by our list of accolades and our lists of achievements. That is what the world tells us. We really gives us value, gives us standing, is your resume. What is the degree you have? What are the accomplishments, the medals, the achievements that you've earned? Those are yours to claim. And Christ reminds us that the way up is the way down. That to be great is to be the least, and to be first is to be last. And so the world looks at the Christian, and he despises him. Because the Christian is different. The Christian's entire moral compass is totally opposite to that of the world. South is north and north is south. Because the Christian is founded upon God's word. His life is built upon a, a, a standard that is not his own. That he, the Christian, even wonders, how, is, is this true? The Christian submits himself in love, in, in, in total... <laughs> in total willingness to one who is his father, his master, his king. And the world cannot make heads or tails of that. The world, all they know is pride. All they know is self-reliance. All they know is contempt. And I would challenge you that this ought to lead you not to contempt for them, because it can. But it should lead you to a humility, a love for your neighbor, a compassion, as God demonstrates here for us. A compassion for the lost, as Christ our Lord demonstrates. So we see that the wicked has contempt. But notice even in verse 4, our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are what? They're at ease. Of the contempt of whom? Of the proud. And so this, we see, is the character of the wicked, the character of those opposed to God's kingdom. Their pride, their contempt, has caused them to be at ease. They are, if in, in a sense, lulled into a false security. Psalm chapter 10, the psalmist says, Why do the wicked prosper? The book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, or the, the preacher, again and again asks the question, why is it that both the Christian and the non-Christian come to the same place, death? And he comes to the end of that book of Ecclesiastes and he says, but here is wisdom, to know the Lord, to fear him, and to follow his ways. So 
the, the unbeliever says, what use is religion? He is at ease because he sees no purpose in giving up himself, in ridding himself of this self-reliance. The, the, the non-Christian says, I have everything I need. And how often can we say the same? I have everything I need. In the sense that, not that we're content, but that we don't need heaven. That we don't need relationship with God. We don't need our brothers and sisters. We are not, we think, dependent upon our king. The unbeliever is also proud. And James 4 reminds us that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. There is a boasting in striving, in personal wisdom, in personal glory, missing much more infinite glory of God, of Jerusalem, and of God's people. Who are you to tell me what to do, they say. Who are you? And the Christian's reply should say, I am no one. My king is everything. My master is the one that I serve without reservation. My father is one who has sent his son, my elder brother, Jesus Christ, to die for me and for sinners like me. I'm no better than anyone else. So I'd ask, as you look at this prayer of the psalmist, there's an honesty here. There's an openness with his God. Do you have that kind of honesty in prayer? Or do you do what I often do, which is you prepare for your prayer and you cloak it. We can cloak it in all these words we think God will approve of, the way we wish we were. Do you show contempt for others? Christians are not exempt from pride. We can be the most guilty and the most hypocritical as the Pharisees were, who claimed to love their God, who claimed to love his word, and yet were the epitome of pride and self-conceit. Think of this contrast even between the kingdom of men and the kingdom of God. God is in the heavens. He is in complete control of all things, of all angels, of all powers, and he is doing it for his holy ends, for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And men are on earth in this chaotic frenzy, hatching a plan for the demise of God's kingdom, for the demise of God's people, for their own glory, to build up their tower that they might reach up to heaven. And how do you respond then when people show you contempt? Do you reply with contempt in return? Do you seek, on the other hand, to appear normal, to appear ashamed of the gospel, to say, well, like Peter, I don't know the man. Who, who, is, who is this Jesus? Do you maybe tweak or change the gospel or even scripture itself to make it sound more palatable to the modern ear? Do you hide certain scripture passages? And yes, there's wisdom. We know we're not going to whip out Romans 9 the first day. <laughs> That's not what I'm saying. But do you hide? 
Or do you proclaim the truth of the gospel? And I will confess to you, I did not. There are days that I go without, that I'm ashamed. And I'm even ashamed to, to admit that to you. But I am thankful that like Peter, there is hope for those who through Christ have confessed their sins. Do you acknowledge to God and the world your total dependence upon him for mercy? Your Savior, Jesus Christ, endured shame, mocking, spitting, and contempt. And he did it in a way that none of us have ever or will ever do. When they cried out, he saved others and he cannot even save himself. And he was silent. A bruised reed he did not break. A smoldering flax he would not snuff out. And John 15, what does Jesus say to, his fellow, to the believer, to his children? If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. The Christian's greatest hope is not that he will win the world to himself, but that all people will one day before that throne of grace and that throne of judgment, that all people from all tribes and tongues and languages will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, whether by compulsion or by conviction. I want to read as, we're, as we close here, Philippians chapter 2. As you consider what it is to be a servant, to be a son or a daughter, and to be a subject of your king. Consider how your Savior embodies this. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. The form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, dear ones, lift up your eyes to the maker of heaven and earth because he offers humility, he offers compassion, he offers the needs that you have to be answered through your Savior, His Son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come to You. Our King, we approach Your throne. And our Master, we submit to Your will. We desire to be Your people. And we confess that many times we are ashamed Many times we are proud. Many times we mimic the world. We follow after them rather than after Christ. 
So, oh Jesus, lead us, guide us, correct us, and shepherd us, for we love you, we honor you, and we praise you in your name. Amen.